In April 2012, I jumped off a proverbial cliff and into the greatest adventure and joy of my life. I began the process of adopting my little girl, Melissa Price Harper. I love you. Her first mama, Marie, died as a result of undiagnosed AIDS when Missy was just a baby, unwittingly infecting her with HIV, which was exacerbated by tuberculosis, severe malnutrition, and a host of other ailments. Doctors in Port-au-Prince didn't give Missy much of a chance, but then again, they didn't know my baby girl has the heart of a warrior. Our adoption process took two long years, but I finally got to bring her home to Tennessee on April 14, 2014, just a few days before Easter, which seemed especially fitting. Little girl, and her name was Missy, and she was oh so wee, and her mama came to Haiti and said, that's my baby, and brought her home to Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Every single day since has been better than the one before. By the grace of God and great medical care, Missy's health is now excellent. Her HIV is completely undetectable and her lungs have no scars from the tuberculosis she suffered from as a toddler. She even has killer abs, which is really the only dead giveaway. She's not my biological child. We're surrounded by an incredible community of friends and family. Missy has more doting aunts and uncles than just about any kid I know. Plus, we've had the joy of getting to go back to the village she's from in Haiti and share the love of Christ with her extended family members. Psalm 68 declares that God is a father to the fatherless, a husband to the husbandless, and he places the lonely in families. That's definitely our story and I plan on praising him over it for the rest of my life. Yeah, baby. That's a lot of kisses. <laughs> <laughs> I did kiss you a lot, didn't I? Yes, ma'am. Did, did it bug you? A little bit. Mommy. It bugged you that I kissed you? Yes, No way, no way. <laughs> I'm coming. Kiss monster is coming. I'm coming after you. <laughs> hey, do you know why I kiss you? Why? Why do you think? Because I lo you love me. How much do you think I love you? More than the whole world. Ugh. Yep, about that much. Yes, even wider, That's even wider. Much. No way. That's much. No way. That's much. No way. That's much. More. <laughs> <laughs> I'm undone that God allows me to be her mama and need to be real frank with y'all. I'm undone that I get to be here this morning. Um, I used to work at Focus on the Family back in the days when we had to wear closed-toed shoes lest our, um, the line between our big toe and second toe would cause a man to stumble. And so to get to come back to this place at Essential Church, I'm... Um, I'm a huge fan of, of Glenn and Daniel and Pastor Boyd, and I, I feel like a donkey at the Kentucky Derby. So I'm, my heart's joyful to be here, very, very grateful. But there's just something about the gravitas of this moment that is, um, has me in kind of a teary estrogen place. Plus, um, I just am starting my doctorate 
and I have a MATS, not an MDiv, and so I had to have an oral exam to get into Denver Seminary. And my, the head of the doctoral program was here, and he didn't know I cheated, and so I'm also feeling conviction. Um, so, um, hey, Dr. Shelley. And so um, let's pray one more time, because I need it before we dive into the text. Jesus, 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 we are undone that you allow us to speak your name publicly. Lord, that you have allowed us to be part of kingdom uh, purposes, that we get to testify to your glory and to your goodness. Lord, I just, um, I'm just stunned that we're in this place focusing on how we can be more effective ministers. And I just want to stop and preach the gospel to myself to remember my own story, how you saved a wretch like me. Um, I'm undone of your redemption in my life, of how many times I've been foolish and you have been so extraordinarily kind and so faithful. And so, Father, I pray, if nothing else, in the next few moments, that those who are weary and well-doing, Lord, that the joy of their salvation would be restored. Thank you for this space. Thank you for this, um, this atmosphere. Father, we pray that even now the meditations of our minds and our hearts would be a fragrant, sweet aroma to you. We ask that it would bring you glory. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Missy and I were on a plane flying home from Dallas, Fort Worth, and I like the Denver airport a little better than the Dallas airport because Dallas is just always delayed. And I'd been at a long women's conference with um, some hateful women, and I just, I just needed a break. I know y'all don't have hateful Christians in your churches, but sometimes I get to go to some churches where the, the women are just less than, um, well, they need to send missionaries to their face. And I'd been with a group of women like that, and I thought, I'm just ready to get on the plane and get home. And when we got to DFW, they told us our flight was delayed per, per usual then they told us we might not get on the flight. And so by the time an hour later I actually got on the flight with Missy, I was just, thank you, Jesus. I don't care where I'm sitting. I'm just glad I'm actually going to make it back to Nashville tonight. We're sitting in the very rear of the plane, just in front of the lavatory. I got her situated in the middle seat, and I was sitting in the aisle seat. I got her all set up on her iPad, and I thought maybe, just maybe, I'm going to be able to get a nap because since I brought her home from Haiti, I'm a single mom, and I'm just always exhausted to the marrow of my bones. It's a good kind of exhaustion, but I'm, I, I usually need a nap and never get one. Somebody asked me the other day if I really wanted a husband. I said, I pray for a nap more than I pray for a husband. But anyway, I thought maybe once I get her situated, I'll, I'll be able to just, you know, just catch a few Zs on the way to Nashville. It's about a two-hour flight. And so I got her situated, put on my, my headphones, and I got the noise cancellation ones, but I got the cheap ones, so they don't really block out all the noise. Noise still seeps in, but they, anyway, they're big, and they tend to have people not talk to me, because I don't want to share the four spiritual laws on a plane. And I just want to be quiet and maybe read a deep theological journal like People Magazine. And so I was leaning <laughs> back in my, in my seat, and, um, and I looked up, you know how you just can sense Somebody is looking at you. And so I kind of opened my eyes, and the flight attendant in that very last jump seat, you know, that's facing us, she's staring right at me, and she's tickled. And she kind of gestured at Missy, and I was like, 
Yeah, and of course I can't hear her, you know, with the roar of the plane, and I've got those headphones on. But she gestured at Missy and smiled like she is a pumpkin. And I was like, she is. She is so cute, isn't she? So we kind of bonded without words over my baby. And I was like, okay, you know, good night. And I leaned back <laughs> again. And the second time I leaned back, within like 20 seconds, I hear the unmistakable sound of like hilarious laughter under my earmuffs. And I look up, and it's the same flight attendant, and she's, like, howling. And I thought, this lady needs a hobby. You know, it's just not that <laughs> funny. And so I, I kind of look up and smile again. She gestures again at Missy, and I'm like, hmm, yeah. You know, she's, she sure is cute. And then she's trying to get my attention. She's like, no, no, look at your kid. Well, at this point, and gentlemen, I apologize for this next part, but I know you're all married. Um, I am at the age and stage of life where I have to wear undergarments that have extreme tinsel strength um, just to keep things kind of close to where God meant them to be. And so I, I was wearing some undergarments that I can't feel my extremities. And I tell you that... Because when I look down at Missy, she is totally engaged in her movie, but she has her left hand up, and she is just going to town on my top right fluffy part. I mean, just going to town. And she's a little bit delayed as far as attachment. Because, you know, I didn't become her mama until she was brought her home when she was four and a half. So you know how it is when little kids are just absolutely enamored with their mama's fluffy part. So she is just loving on my fluffy part. And this is what has really tickled the flight attendant. And then I look at my kid's mouth because I realize she's saying something. But, you know, she's wearing her headphones, listening to her movie. I'm wearing my headphones. So I can't tell exactly what she's saying until I pull my earmuff back and hear my kid bellow loud enough for the whole plane to hear, Mama, I just love your breast. I just love your breast. And I realized at that point the whole rear of the plane was laughing. It wasn't just the flight attendant. And that's one of the things motherhood has done for me is I've become really um, aware of my soft parts. And y'all, that's... One of the things ministry has done for me, too, because for years and years and years, I thought to be an effective minister of the new covenant was to bury my soft parts. It was to not deal with my own pain. And when Pastor Boyd um, invited me to come, I, I knew I was out of my league to be with y'all, to be with leaders. And so I spent a lot of time in prayer thinking what has been essential for me, especially in the second half of ministry. I'm 55, and I thought, you know, what's been a, essential for me in ministry is to go to the soft places of my life that I tried for so long to protect. About 12 years ago, the Lord came into my life and just wrecked me. And he said, Lisa, I'm going to take you to the basement. I'm going to take you to the place you've been afraid of your whole life, and I'm going to sit there with you in the dark until fear doesn't own you anymore. And I'm telling you, it's the weakest I have ever felt emotionally. And it radically transformed the way I do ministry. And that's where I want to go just briefly this morning. I want to talk about the difference between leadership and self-sufficiency. Because sometimes I think we think they're the same thing. You know, psychologists and sociologists are saying that this point in history is possibly the most contentious time ever in modernity. 
I don't know if you've read this recently, but I read on a medical journal on the way here that the U.S. now prescribes more anxiety meds than all of the countries in Europe put together. I mean, if ever there was a time when people feel vulnerable and exposed and are wrestling with disappointment and pain, it is now. And unfortunately, sometimes I, I get to be a guest at churches where I feel like, you know what, y'all need to preach that Pollyanna doesn't live here anymore because perky is not a spiritual gift. Joy is not other than pain. Grief and glory are not two opposite ends of the spectrum. When we say we go from glory to glory, y'all know Paul there is talking about God's glory. He's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. He's not talking about the fact that everything's going to be hunky-dory for us. And it wasn't until I went to the places and grieved the places where his image has been shattered in my own life that I feel like I actually began to minister well with the people God allowed me to rub shoulders with. And he took me to motherhood and he took me to the book of Job. And I know that doesn't sound like a real positive place to be at Essential Church. I used to think to read Job was like putting your hand in a blender. But y'all, I'll tell you, this in the last decade has become one of the most effective texts for me to really minister well in the world that he has us plopped in. So turn to the book of Job. I'm going to read just real briefly from the ESV. Before I go there, I need to confess to y'all that I am uber conservative. I'm a cover-to-cover -cover Bible girl. Um, Mama's Baptist, Dad's Pentecostal, so I lean heavily on the costal. I don't know that I have much Baptist left, but, um, but I am conservative. So I believe Job is a true story. I do not believe this is parabolic. I believe there really was a guy named Job. At the beginning of Job, he was probably pre-patriarchal. Y'all know that, but at the beginning of Job, we're told he was a good man. He was a really, really good guy. We're told that he was living a really, really good life. Based on chapter one, he's got 11,000 employees, if you count their families, under his employee. And I love the fact that most of it is agricultural because I am really attracted to guys who are kind of men's men. Like, I don't want a boy with skinny jeans who uses more hair product than me. So the fact that Job is like, probably got a John Deere with a fish on the back, like that just thrills me. So his wealth is in the agriculture arena. Of course, everybody's was back then. He's a good guy living a good life and he's doing good things with his life. We're told in chapter 1 that it was his, his habit. It says early every morning. It's Hebrew idiom. It just means every single day. He was in the habit of praying for his family. And, you know, he's got 10 kids. So this is a good guy living a good life, doing good things with his life. And then through no fault of his own, he loses everything. Loses everything. Loses all of his wealth. More importantly, everyone who matters to him save his wife. And y'all all know Mrs. Job has been vilified in history um, because she said, curse God and die. But as a single mom, I think she lost all 10 of her babies. I cannot imagine how I would react if God allowed me to lose my one daughter. So I do not fault Mrs. Job. I would be a lot grumpier than that. So you've got Job. He's got these three stooges for friends and he deals with losing everything. And God says, he doesn't sin. He doesn't sin in this horrific loss. 
One of my favorite verses in the whole book is in Job chapter 1 when it says, he tears his robe and he shaves his head, which you know are signs of extreme grief in this ancient era, and then he worships. Y'all, that is a miraculous juxtaposition, to be in grief and to worship, to have a broken heart and raise your hands at the same time. I mean, that just slays me, and I feel like we make that... uh, We make that not real safe sometimes for people at church. I was at a church recently, and I asked a woman how I could pray for her. And she said, oh, I don't need prayer. And I was like, you're about to after I kick you in the shins. Because, you know, the whole point of the gospel is we can't make it by ourselves. But that there's something about professional Christianity that when, then we act like, I'm all good, I'm all good, I'm all good. Again, glory to glory is God's glory. It's not us doing it all right Lord, have mercy, I think I've made more mistakes in the latter part of my ministry than I did in the first part, but it's because I'm taking more risk. I'm not Pollyanna anymore. I love that Job was honest because I used to think there was a continuum of emotion with good emotions on one end, and that was kind of perky and positive and strong. And so I had these emotions I thought were okay for ministry, and then these emotions over here, I thought I've got to kind of hide those from the Lord, or at the very least, from the body of Christ. And Job says, no, there's no good emotions and there's bad emotions. You bring all of you to all of me. Bring all of you to all of me. I love that about Job. He gets to the point to where all of him doesn't look very pleasant. Certainly doesn't look like you'd want to have a conference and and have a t-shirt based on his emotions. Job chapter 19, this is the Prozac chapter. Job says, verse 13, he has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. Verse 14, my relatives have failed me, my close friends have forgotten me, the guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. That, in my opinion, is not a great translation. A better translation is my breath is offensive to my wife. In other words, they're not getting jiggy with it anymore. He's on the couch. Um, Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. So Job is saying, I don't know if I can do this much longer. I mean, I'm worshiping the Lord with a broken heart, but I think he's called the wrong guy. This is really tough. Have you been there in ministry? If you have not acknowledged being in a Job 19 kind of place in ministry, I will tell you there are scads of people around you that God is allowing you to be a minister to who are in this very place, in this exact place. I have a Tuesday morning Bible study in Nashville, and we've been meeting together for years and years and years and years. And it's a group of women who are most of them exceedingly wealthy and beautiful. It's kind of the thin blonde group. I'm the odd man out. And just in the last five years, four of my dear friends have lost their children, two to suicide. We've had some horrific divorces. One of my closest friends was thrown from a boat over Labor Day weekend, and they didn't think she'd survive. A friend of hers who'd driven in that lake for 20 years, he just took a wrong turn and hit the beach instead of a cove, and she went flying out and broke her back in five places. Y'all, we live in a broken world. 
to minister any way other than that is just foolishness. And it now rings foolish to the world around us. The world around us is, is this real to me? Or are y'all just singing hymns while the trains are heading past to Auschwitz? Are you real? And that's not independent of joy. Joy and grief are not the opposite. As a matter of fact, I think grief is a sign that we still have joy. It says it's supposed to be different than this. Grief isn't ungodly. Grief points to the hope we have in a redeemer. Job says, I am at the end here. I don't know that I can do this much longer. I feel like I've got nobody. I've got nothing. Missy was not my first adoption attempt. When I was 40, I decided God was calling me to adoption, and a woman in my small group at church pulled me aside and told me that I was not a good candidate for motherhood because she said, you have told us there's sexual molestation in your past. And she said, Lisa, I know you've been to counseling, but just in case you weren't fixed, you might unwittingly transfer some of that trauma onto a child of your own. So I would encourage you not to adopt. Just go to the Nashville Humane Society and adopt a dog instead because you're really good with pets. Um, I wish I could tell you I was faithful enough as a 40-year-old to know those words are not congruent with our Redeemer's words, um, but I was fearful. You know, here's the deal about the enemy, y'all. We do ourselves such a disservice when we caricaturize him as being in a Beyonce onesie with horns. You know, that's not who he is. He takes those soft, tender places from our past, and he weaves that into this toxic poison that we swallow because it sounds familiar. So if you don't go to the places in your past that still have pain associated with it, I'm telling you, he still has power there. And I hadn't gone there yet. So as a 40-year-old woman who'd been walking with Jesus for 35 years, when that woman said, you aren't good enough to be a mama, it resonated with me. I didn't stop and think my Jesus wouldn't say that. My Jesus might say, wait, but he would never say, Lisa, you're not good enough for what I have called you to. He doesn't use shame as a motivational tool. So it was seven more years before I started the adoption process. And uh, it was a miracle the way I got matched with this little mama. She was a hardcore crack addict and a prostitute. It's a miracle she didn't abort her baby. She didn't know who the daddy was. It was one of her Johns. And through just a miracle, I got connected with this precious little mama that I call Marie. That's not her real name. And then it was an additional miracle that she carried the baby to term. Because the whole seven-month process I was doing life with Marie, the doctors told us there's just no way. There's no way this baby is going to be born alive. There's been too much uh, drug addiction, too much hardcore crack. I spent Christmas that year in a crack house because when I was with her, she used a lot less. I told all my friends in Nashville, y'all don't give me any baby showers. I mean, this is such a, a tenuous process. It's unlikely that I'll get to bring Anna Price home. Uh, Marie had allowed me to name the baby girl, and I named her Anna after the prophetess in Luke 2 because I love that Anna held on to hope because sometimes that's like wet soap for me. And I love that she just held on and held on and held on until she saw Jesus. So I named my soon-to-be-born little girl Anna after Anna in Luke 2. And then my little brother's middle name is Price. And our family is kind of Jerry Springer. So I thought that would kind of redeem our family lineage. So I named her Anna Price. And I told my friends, don't give me any presents for Anna Price. Don't have any parties. Let's just wait and see because this is just so precarious. I don't know if I'll actually get to bring her home. 
Well, five days before Marie was going to be induced, it was a miracle she had carried almost to term. The adoption agent called me. I was sitting in my living room. I live in the boonies south of Nashville, Tennessee. And I saw it was my adoption agent on the phone. And I said, hey, Ange, what's going on? And she said, Lisa, I know this has been a really, really long, arduous process. But she said, it's time to celebrate. She said, every single entity involved in your adoption has signed the paperwork. You are the only person legally allowed to take Anna Price home from the hospital in five days. She she said, it's just time to celebrate. Well, I got off the phone and I just collapsed on the couch. You know how when you've been carrying a really heavy boulder up a really steep hill, when you finally get to the top, you just feel like the relief is overwhelming. I just collapsed on the couch and just cried over the goodness of God. And then I called two of my closest friends, and I called my mama. And I told my mom, Mama, you're going to have a granddaughter. My sister has two sons. My brother has one. So we didn't have any granddaughters in our family. And my mama cried because, gentlemen, you all know at this point, that's what we do when we're happy. It's either tears or carbs or preferably both. And so... (laughs) I just cried. I was so grateful. And then the doorbell rang. I went to the front door, and it was a UPS guy. He had this huge box. And so I opened the box and pulled out a card from a friend of mine near Atlanta. And she said, Lisa, I know you told us not to give you any gifts for Anna Price. But she said, I know like I know my name that you're bringing her home. And I also know that her genealogy is really, really dark. But I believe now that she's becoming a harper, it's going to be clean. And so I saw this in a a baby shop, and I thought, this looks like I believe what God is going to do in Anna Price's life with her story. And I pulled out this miniature zero to six months white fur coat. And um, then I sat back down on the couch and cried because nobody's ever given me a mink. And um, so I'm starting to put that coat away, and the phone rings again, and it's the adoption agent. And I thought I'd just forgotten to sign some form and scan it in. And so I said, hey, Ange. And the minute I heard her voice, I thought, oh, this is not good news. And it's been six and a half years, and I'm still not at liberty to share what happened next But the bottom line is the bottom just fell out of our story. And um, I lost both that precious adoptive mama. She did not go to rehab. We lost the baby. And I felt like somebody had just cut my chest open and pulled my heart out and set it out on the interstate next to my home. And I sat back down on the couch. And I don't know how long I sat there. I just said, "I, I can't. I can't do this. I can't do this. Maybe it was 10 minutes or maybe it was 30 minutes later. The phone rang again. I saw it was my mama. And I thought, oh, Lord, have mercy. I don't have what it takes to tell my mama she's not going to have a granddaughter. After all, I can't. I can't do this. But I thought if I don't answer the phone, I know my mama. She'll just keep calling. And if I don't answer after about 15 minutes, she'll call 911. (laughs) So I thought I need to go ahead and and talk to mom and I said hey mama and she didn't even recognize that my voice was broken she just real quickly stepped in and she said honey I'm sorry to call with such bad news on such a celebratory day but she said um you remember I told you that I had an ongoing bladder infection and I said yes ma'am and she said well I just got off the phone with my doctor and honey it's not a bladder infection 
After all, I have stage four appendiceal cancer. And she said, um, Lisa, I'm really scared, and I need you to pray for me. And so I just started praying for my mama on the phone. I didn't even tell her in that call that we had lost Anna Price. About five minutes later, my daddy called. My parents divorced when I was a little girl. It was a very, very ugly, acrimonious divorce. My father knew nothing that had gone on with my mom. They hadn't really talked in 40 years. And I looked at my dad's number on the screen, and I thought, oh, Lord, Jesus. I don't have what it takes to talk to my daddy. I hadn't talked to him yet that day, so I hadn't told him that we had Enterprise, then we lost Enterprise. So I picked up the phone, and I said, hey, Daddy, my dad's a, a real brusque man. He's kind of like John Wayne Jr. He's little, but he's tough. Uh, put himself through college riding Bronx in the rodeo. And not real demonstrative. I got most of my dad's words. But he said, baby, sorry to bother you, but uh, I just came back from a surgeon's office, had scans today. My dad had battled colon cancer, we thought successfully, five years before. And he said, baby, the cancer's back. It's uh, metastasized to both of my lungs and most of my bones, and the surgeon's given me two months to live. He said, now I'm not scared. I know exactly where I'm going, but I'm worried about your sister, so I want you to get on the phone and explain this to your sister. I told y'all we were Jerry Springer. And so <laughs> I prayed with my daddy, and I got off the phone, and I called my sister, and y'all... About an hour later, I just, I, I don't think I've ever felt that depleted in my whole life. And then I had this epiphany and I was like, oh, goodness gracious. I need to go pack because I've got an early flight in the morning. I'm going to Kansas City to speak to a group of leaders about the faithfulness of God. And I thought, Lord, you've, you've picked the wrong girl. I don't have what it takes to do that. That was uh, 11 years ago. You know what was interesting? It, uh, it wasn't, I said 11 years ago, it was six and a half years ago. Um, my first dad died 11 years ago. It wasn't, um, it wasn't hard to speak. It was hard to pack that night. It was hard to set my alarm really early and drive to the Nashville airport. And it was hard to get on a plane. I didn't want to make small talk. But to walk up, and stand by my Bible and say our God is faithful, that wasn't hard. Because by that point, I looked back over my life and I thought, I've never seen your back. I've never seen your back. I've never experienced anything less than kindness from you. Even in your discipline, you have been kind to me. You are such a good God. Y'all, if we will go to the soft places in ministry... Our ministry will deepen. Our ministry will expand. I believe we'll see more salvations. I believe we'll see more marriages reconciled. If we'll go to the grief, there will be more glory. Job gets to the point of going, I think you've called the wrong guy. And then there's this left turn. It's the most beautiful left turn, I think, in the Old Testament. He goes from this is too hard to my redeemer lives. In the same chapter, very same chapter, he goes from I can't do it to you are absolutely sufficient. You are sufficient. You are supreme. You are kind. You are alive. None of this is a surprise to you. Y'all know the word he uses for redeemer there in Job 19 is goel in Hebrew. It's kinsman redeemer. 
I love the use and in, in when we see it in the book of Ruth because I'm praying for a Boaz. And so I love that word, but it's kind of curious here in Job 19 because in Job 16, he had said that God, Jehovah, is his accuser. That God is the one who has allowed this difficulty into his life. Y'all, we have got to wrestle with that. Because for far too long, the church has agreed with the world that pain is punitive. But if you look at pain in the economy of God, it is not punitive at all. More often than not, it's a promotion. He's saying, I believe you can bear so much more fruit than you have ever prayed yourself. And so I'm going to prune you, and it's going to hurt like heck. But you can't see around the corner. You cannot see the prolific fruit that's around the corner. I don't believe I would have had the kind of heart that says yes to a baby in Haiti that the doctor said had two months to live had my heart not been eviscerated by loss. I don't think I would have trusted God enough. God doesn't remove his hand of protection from Job. Y'all, he becomes his publicist. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Some of us have believed the lie of the enemy that the hard stuff that has happened to us is because God has removed his favor. And I want to present to you that maybe God has given you more favor than you prayed for. Maybe he's saying, I'm going to let you walk through this because other people will see the way that you walk it and it will bring me glory. Because when you have been to the hard places and you still believe your Redeemer lives, y'all, that dog will hunt. That will preach. You show me a skinny 22-year-old with a high metabolism who says God has been faithful and I want to punch her in the throat. <laughs> How do you know about God's faithfulness? Baby, you're still wet behind the ears. Show me somebody who is grieved. Show me somebody who has stood over a fresh grave of someone they loved or the death of a dream. And that person says, my redeemer lives. My redeemer is still on the throne. And I go, that, that's truth to me. That's truth to me. Two weeks after I lost Anna Price, I was in a hospital waiting room and they were operating on my mama. It was a four hour surgery. They weren't sure she would come through the surgery and I was just waiting by the phone praying. And the surgeon called and he said, Lisa, it's mostly good news. He said, most of the cancer was encapsulated. He said, your mama's going to die, but she's going to die of old age. She's not going to die from this cancer. Two days later, my sister and I were keeping a vigil in my mama's room, and that same surgeon called, and he said, Lisa, I'm really sorry to tell you, but your mother is not doing well at all. He said, the surgery was successful, but evidently her body was so weakened by how invasive the cancer was that her numbers are continuing to decline. And if they don't turn around really quickly, we're going to lose your mama in the next 24 hours. He said, I know you to be a woman of faith, and so I called to tell you now is the time to pray. About an hour after that, my mom was mostly unconscious. She roused, she kind of stirred, and she looked at me and she said, I need to see your father. And my sister looked at me. My sister said, you tell her. Because my stepfather had died several years before, and we thought Mama was just so addled from the morphine, she didn't remember that angel had died. So my sister said, you tell her, I've always been the windbag in the family. So I leaned over Mama, and I said, hey, Mama, I'm, I'm so sorry. I said, but Daddy, Daddy died. Remember, Daddy, Daddy's not here anymore, so Dad can't come. And my mom said, not that father. She said, I want to see your 
you could have knocked me over with a feather because my mama, my dad Harper hadn't spoken in almost 40 years. And the few words they had said about each other uh, were less than kind. So I walked out of my mom's hospital room and I called my daddy. And I said, Dad, you know, um, we're still in the hospital with Mama. And he said, yeah, your sister told me. And he said, um, I said, well, the doctor just told us that we may lose Mama in, um, in the next 24 hours. And I said, Daddy, she's asking for you. And he said, all right. He said, you give me an hour and I'll be there. Sure enough, an hour later, here comes my gruff Daddy walking down the hospital corridor, big belt buckle. You know, little man, he comes swaggering up to my sister and I. We're standing outside my mom's hospital room, and he said, Lisa, Teresa, I love you girls, and I need to go in and have some privacy with your mother. Y'all stay out here. I'm going to go in and see your mother. And he walked in the room, and I looked at my sister, and I said, we're going to be on Jerry Springer. <laughs> I said, he's he's going to go in and put a pillow over her head. You know, they hate each other, and he was in there for about 20 minutes, y'all. I was nervous as a cat, and just about the time we're going to go in and interrupt them, the door opens, and there comes my daddy, and he said, Lisa, Teresa, I love you girls. Your mother's going to be fine. I'll be back here same time tomorrow, and he swaggers off. Well, I go flying into mom's room to make sure she's still breathing, and she is sitting up in bed for the, for the first time since pre-surgery. She's sitting up in bed. She has color in her face. And the first thing she says is, girls, your father anointed me with oil, and I'm going to be fine. And I thought, they are giving her a medicinal pot. I mean, there is no other way to explain this. It's marijuana. It has to be marijuana. There's no way. Y'all, sure enough, two days later, they released my mama from the hospital. That was six years ago. My mom's 82. She walks six miles a day. She's healthy as a horse. But that is not the real miracle of the story. The real miracle of the story is from that day in April of 2012 until February 7th, 2013, my mother and my father either saw each other or talked on the phone every single day. The very last person to be with my daddy was my mama holding his hand, reading God's word to him. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed it. It was a reconciliation. It was a, it was a healing I had stopped praying for. I thought, my Redeemer lives. It was at the place that was a place I didn't want to go. The saddest place in our family, the most broken place in our family. And when we went there, we found redemption, y'all. There are miracles on the other side of rivers of tears. And as leaders in the family of God, it is incumbent upon us to do the work to get to the miracle. To go, Lord, I'm going to stay in the hard place because I know you live. And for me to talk about redemption honestly, I have to go to the places that need to be redeemed. Two days before my mama went into surgery, I got a phone call from a friend of mine I hadn't talked to in years. And she said, Lisa, I know you're grieving Anna Price. I know losing that little girl broke your heart. But she said, I just got home from Haiti. And while I was in Haiti, one of the young moms died of AIDS, and she left behind a two-year-old who has tuberculosis and cholera and is extremely malnourished, and she has HIV. And the doctors in Port-au-Prince said she's going to die in two months. And I thought about you, and I remembered you said you wanted a kid nobody was standing in line for, and that's not because I'm an essential leader. 
is because I'm a single woman, and I think best-case scenario is kids get a mama and a daddy, so you can still pray that I'll get a baby daddy. And so I had told my adoption agent, do not consider me for a child who has a good shot at a mom and a dad. But if there's a child who doesn't have much of a shot at all, I would be delighted if you considered me in that case scenario. She said, I thought about you. And she said, her name is Missy. Will you pray about adopting her? And I said, no, I won't pray about it. said, I've been praying about this for 30 years. Sign me up. And then, y'all, I got off the phone and I said a word that rhymes with wit. So I'm sorry, Dr. Shelley, I said a bad word because I was just overwhelmed. I thought, good night. This is way beyond my pay grade. I don't know how in the world I'm going to be a mama to a single kid who doctors are saying isn't going to live. And I felt like in that moment, the Lord said, I've got this and I've got you. You just keep walking. Just keep walking and don't avoid the hard parts. Don't avoid the deep parts. The deep parts will reveal parts of me that you have longed for and have been brave enough to pray about. Y'all, I think the ministries that we represent, there is so much more for us to see if we will press into the places where people are disappointed, if we'll press into the places where people ache, if we will actually recognize in our own hearts that grief and hope are not incongruent. That living hope oftentimes involves grief because we live in a broken world. We've got to remember that it's broken in order to keep longing for our Redeemer, this living Redeemer. I'm going to ask you all to stand up as we close this part of our time together. And I know I don't have the right to be bossy with you all. I do recognize that I'm a guest in this house and very fortunate to get to rub shoulders with y'all, but I'm, I'm going to take a liberty anyway. I'm going to ask those of y'all who are in really difficult seasons, maybe it has something to do with your family, maybe it has something to do with a loss, maybe it has something to do with a grief that you have not yet fully grieved, but there's a place in your life that kind of represents a basement. And the Holy Spirit right now is saying, Baby, I want you to go there. And I'm going to sit with you in the dark until not only does this not own you anymore, but this actually creates a space for profound ministry and healing in your life and the lives of those around you. If you're in a difficult season, for whatever reason, none of us need to know why, would you please just sit down wherever you are? Just sit down. Maybe you've got a parent you're taking care of and it is really, really difficult that you've lost your best friend. Maybe you've got a marriage that's in trouble and y'all have been wearing perky faces for a long time, but your heart is heavy this morning. Maybe you have been devastated by the moral failure of a man you really looked up to, someone on your church staff. Would you please sit down if you're in a season of disappointment, if you're in a weary season, I'm not that smart, y'all, but I have the Spirit of God living in me, and some of y'all are lying. If you can't sit down and ask for prayer in a place like this, you're in trouble in ministry. If you're in a difficult season, sit down, please. Those of y'all who are standing, if you're not telling a tale, if you're standing in a place of strength because of the goodness of God, if you're telling a tale... I'm going to pray you get hives. But if you're not <laughs> telling a tale, it is our joy and our privilege 
to go to our brothers and our sisters and lay hands on them, whether you are an ecclesiastical kid or a pew jumper. That's a biblical thing. That's not a denominational thing. Would you go stand over by one of these beautiful men, by one of these brave men, and would you lay hands on them? Let's be the body, y'all. And would you pray not for a quick healing, but for a revelation of the glory of God in this place. That while they are in this place of grief or disappointment, that the revelation of his glory would be so clear and so profound that it would mark them. That there would be a radiance about them that people would not be able to ignore because they have been with God in places where some people would say, how can there be a God if this happens? Would you pray that he would be the lifter of their head? Would you pray that even as they grieve, there would be a supernatural joy that wells up in them, that they would feel even now just lavished by the oil of gladness, that they would find themselves grinning even as they weep, that they would raise their hands even as their heart is rent in two. Jesus, 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 come in this place, King Jesus Father, circumcise our hearts and our minds so that we would be willing to go anywhere to be closer to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you allow us to share the gospel, to talk about you, to talk about the places you've saved us and healed us and redeemed us. Oh, Father, give us deeper testimonies. Give us more authority because we have been every place we are afraid of and you held us in that place. Our Redeemer lives. Lord, cleave us to yourself. Make it where we can't go anywhere apart from you, where you are the very breath that we leave. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus.